0: Good morning. Romans 16, verses 1 through 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Synchre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known by the apostles. And they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stakes. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncretus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. This is the very word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Adam. And all of the church this morning, thanks, Adam, <laughs> that you did not get chosen to read those verses and pronounce all of those names. Thank you to Ashley Thomas for making sure we had somebody who would read today. I told her, I said, if nobody will do it, I'll do it. And um, Adam volunteered for us. And he did a remarkable job, don't you think? A remarkable job. And if you don't think so, you have no reason to know otherwise because you can't pronounce those names. promise you. Now, this last chapter of Romans is remarkable. I know that these verses don't seem very remarkable. It's sort of like the genealogies. You're like, what in the world should we do with a text like this? But actually, as you're going to see in a moment, the list of names is in and of itself quite unusual and remarkable in comparison with uh, Paul's other letters. As insignificant as a passage like this might seem to you and to me, It's worth our time and consideration. We do well to keep in mind, as we begin, that Paul has written this letter to the Romans to remind them of the gospel that he preached, a gospel that he said he was not ashamed of because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, Christian, you've got to keep this in mind. When Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, he does not mean, when he says salvation, going to heaven rather than hell when you die. But rather the promise, the gospel promise, that death itself will be reversed. That the kingdom of God will come fully on earth as it is in heaven. And that this way is open for anyone, yes, absolutely anyone, to participate in that wonderful promise. We oftentimes, and usually I find, just like in this theme that I want to talk to you about this morning, the love of God. I think uh, we, we, ha- we have a different default in our minds when we think about salvation we tend to think of it as escape from the earth going to heaven getting out of this wretched place when the bible is actually telling an entirely different story it's telling a story about how God is transforming this place how he's begun this work of new creation in Christ that we're meant to be here and that the hope of Easter is the guarantee that this is actually the case um I can't help but say this, the the passage we read this morning for our assurance of pardon is one of those passages that we often read with, a, with that default in mind. And so when the Bible says that God has kept in heaven for us uh, this great promise, this great treasure, we often think, oh, yeah, so I got to get there to get it. And uh, one commentator on that has said that if I tell you I've got a nice cold beer in the refrigerator kept in the refrigerator for you, that doesn't mean you have to get into the refrigerator in order to enjoy it, right? It means it's being preserved there for you to go get it and enjoy it outside of the refrigerator. And that's how we should understand that verse as well. So let's get this right in our minds. We're not going to understand Paul's gospel that he's explained in the book of Romans, if we think salvation means getting out of the earth, floating away into some disembodied place. That is not what the Bible is promising. You don't believe that anymore, right? Because we've been doing Romans together for 40 weeks. So you've got this down. All right. So the good news of the Christian gospel is that the same God who created the world as an overflow of his powerful love has now begun a new creation. Again, a result of his powerful love. Those who have experienced this love now possess, listen, those who have been loved by God now possess the greatest transforming power the world has ever known, namely the power of the love of God. So I'm looking at our passage this morning, and I believe that these 16 verses in their own unique way can help us to take this from the theoretical, God loves me, okay, I, I guess, to the practical. We are, we are listening in here on, in these verses on Paul's personal correspondence to ancient Christians, most of whom we know nothing else about than what we find here. But what Paul and his audience knew and what you and I need to come to know or to be reminded about is the transforming power of the love of God for the people of God. We need to know what they knew About God's love. Namely, this morning I want to speak to you about first, what this love indicates, second, where it originates, and third, what it motivates. I want to speak to you this morning about the transforming power of the love of God, namely, what this love indicates, second, where it originates, and third, what it motivates. So first, what does the love of God indicate? And the answer from these verses is that where you see the love of God, you find, you find it as a distinguishing trait of God's family. The love of God indicates the presence of God's chosen people it indicates the reality that there is a new family, a Christian family. Now, what I'm doing here is I'm simply wanting to begin with a general observation about the entirety of the passage that Adam read for us this morning. You see, it's not uncommon for Paul to end his letters with personal greetings. This was common in his day, just as it is in our day. What's far more uncommon, actually, is for Paul to do what he does here, and that is mention so many names. In fact, there are more personal greetings here in Romans 16, far more, than you find in the rest of Paul's letters combined. This is why I say it's a remarkable passage. This is unusual in Paul's letters. Only in Colossians and Second Timothy do we find personal names of people that Paul says greet them for me. They're there, the place I'm writing to. Only two other places, two other letters, does he mention any names at all. And in both those letters, he mentions two. Here, he mentions 25. So this is remarkable. If you're a, if you're a Pauline scholar, this would get your attention. And I'm saying, even if you're not a Pauline scholar, you're a Christian, you believe your Bible, this should get our attention. What explains these greetings? Now, admitting at the start that any answer we give to that question is a guess, I still find it compelling that the tension between the strong and the weak in Romans 14 and 15 gives us a clue on why Paul mentions so many names. It just may be that, as some commentators suggest, Paul has mentioned here... Every single Christian in Rome known to him, either by name or by the household church to which they belong. In other words, he's leaving nobody out. If I stood up here before you today and said, you know, I just want to thank all you at at Crosstown. I mean, look, there's the Thomases over there, and there's the Hivelys, Sierra, Clyde. And I just start, I better not leave anybody out, right? Well, Paul seems to be doing the same thing. He begins to greet some people in Rome, and given the tension that there exists between the believers in Rome, that Paul addressed in Romans 14 and 15, he wants to leave no one out. You see, what he's doing is he is legitimating the membership of every single one of the Roman believers in the family of God. None of them are excluded. He mentions every one of them by name. Whatever issues tended to divide them, they were still In the end, brothers and sisters, members of the same family, and Paul wants to stress that point. And this is a point that Christians need to stress again in our day as well. Sure, let's admit it, we Christians disagree about a lot of things. The disagreements that we have, not only within the congregation, but even in different churches, They are real, and they're not unimportant. But the way that we tend to disparage one another over those disagreements is not just lamentable. It is abominable. If someone claims to be a Christian, you had better proceed cautiously. I had better proceed cautiously if we begin to cast doubt on that. I hear way too many Christians doing that disparaging another person who claims to be a Christ follower. We had better be careful. The greetings that we find here are an expression of the love that exists between believers and was a mark of the early Christian community. We who profess faith in Christ must be zealous about expressing genuine affection for the other members of the global Christian family. And here on Juneteenth, I think it's important For a predominantly white congregation to say this and to say it well, we have brothers and sisters in Christ worshiping God in a different culture, for sure, who were damaged and hurt by the slavery, the abomination of this country. And we better be careful before we start disparaging them because you might see things politically a different way. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. We better be careful about how we speak of other Christians with whom we might disagree about all sorts of things. So two obvious examples here in our day. It's simply unchristian. That's why I call it an abomination. To question the legitimacy of a person's faith in Christ by the political party to which one belongs or by the the denomination in which they worship. It's unchristian. It offends our Lord who died for his family to cast doubt. Now, you may be well puzzled by how one person could be both a Christian and a Democrat, or vice versa. But you had better learn to accept that you've got brothers and sisters who are on the other side of the political aisle who are equally puzzled about you. You better learn to accept that. The same can be said, of course, about the various kinds of Christian churches to which we belong. Christian denominations exist, let's be honest, because there's real disagreements, but those disagreements are not indications of division within Christianity. They are an indication of disagreement, yes, but it is in how we treat each other that indicates whether or not we are actually divided. The issues that threatened to divide the strong and the weak in Rome were every bit as polarizing as the issues that we face in our own time and place. And it is true, which I'll come to in a moment, there are times in which we have to draw a thick line of division, which separates true from false Christians. But we had better not draw those lines too quickly and end up drawing the wrong lines that thereby divide the church, which is, of course, the Christian family, indicated by the love that they have for one another. Our Lord said so in John 13, 35. Now, one obvious evidence that this love exists in the church uh, has, to indi- has to be in the church. Like This isn't a negotiable. This, this isn't a, a thing that one church can decide that they're going to major on while another church says, nah, we'll do away with that. We're talking about the love of God an indication of which is the love of God in his people for his people. Uh, One indication that this is so important is found at the very end of this passage in verse 16, where Paul tells the Christians in Rome, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, we know, of course, and if you've traveled much at all around the world, that what Paul is referring to here is a cultural expression. He would undoubtedly say to us Americans, greet each other with a holy... What are we going to do? Fist bump? Is that the thing now? Handshake at least? Hug? All right. But notice, Paul isn't just referring to a culture expression here because he could have just said that with greet one another with a kiss. He doesn't say that. He calls it a holy kiss. Now... Teenagers are usually taught this means something else. But here's what it means to have a holy kiss. To urge the believers to greet each other this way is to say, in effect, that Christians, here's what you got to do. You've got to get busy cultivating a gospel culture in a gospel community. Where the gospel is preached, a gospel culture takes root but, Christian, your job is to, to cultivate the garden of a gospel culture and gospel community. You do this by real expressions of brotherly, sisterly affection. This is a more enlightening comment from Paul than we might at first think. Because you, what you see here at the end of this passage and all these greetings, you see a picture of what a church ought to feel like. Can I say that? <laughs> The kind of culture, the vibe that you get from being a part of a Christian community. Far from being a mere spectator sport, a mere worship service, an event that you attend, or an experience that you might have as some sort of a religious consumer, the church is fundamentally a family. That's not just a nice little metaphor The family that you have is the metaphor for the real thing. The Christian community, the people of God who will share eternity together. The kind of experience then that a person ought to have when they encounter the church is a personal, tangible feel as real as a holy fist bump, handshake, hug. Something physical, embodied that indicates There's a real family here. Paul could not have imagined the church being thought of as anything other than persons meeting together like a family. Going to church to him, if ever an expression like that were even used, could hardly have meant showing up at a place without interacting with the other members of a family. You know, like sitting down at a family dinner and then nobody even talks to each other. Cell phone out. Uh Uh-oh. Never. Would this have even crossed Paul's mind that that would count as going to church? At the same time, he must have known. He wrote Romans 14 and 15 that there are all kinds of temptations for people to to stay away from one another. Including, of course, the conflict that is prone to come in any kind of relationship. You put the phone down at the family dinner table and a conflict might happen. Believe me, I know. But it's worth it. The risk is worth it. Loneliness and isolation are not just social ills. They are, more importantly, a spiritual threat. So Paul can call the kiss of greeting a holy kiss. Holy. What makes this kind of greeting holy? Probably that it is the greeting that is reserved only for fellow Christians, not like some secret handshake reserved only for the initiated, but the kind of greeting that indicates a much closer familial relationship. So who are you folks that haven't met the leonards yet? Before you leave, greet them with a holy, whatever they feel okay with, yeah side hug I don't know. This is an indication of the family of God. Are you with me? All right, next. You can begin to imagine then, from Paul's greetings in this passage, what it's supposed to feel like in the church, the the genuine expression of love and welcome that ought to indicate the presence of the family of God. But here's the next question I want us to look at. What makes it so How does it come about? What's so sacred about that kind of love within a community? You don't have to be a Christian to experience the feel, the vibe of a loving community. What empowers this kind of love? What makes it holy? Where does it come from? Where does this love originate? And it's an important question that's about as relevant to our world today as anything else. Because... It's love between persons that needs an explanation, not hatred, not conflict. The latter is much easier, more natural, if you will, to our fallen condition than the former. Where you see genuine love, you are encouraged to ask where is it coming from? What's the source? What originates it? And again, we should remind ourselves as we read through these verses, there's no illusion of love expressed here in Romans 16. The conflict that Paul highlights in the previous two chapters reminds us that there was tension among the believers in Rome, just as there is tension in any kind of genuine relationship. When, when, when people look at Christianity today and say, look at all the different denominations, the church is divided. Again, I'm just telling you, the fact that there are different denominations does not in itself prove division. It proves disagreement. There's all kinds of disagreement in a healthy family and relationship. Because what Paul is after here, and what he knows is the case, what he's optimistic about, is that the tension... The disagreements would not end up dividing the church, but would give actually the greater opportunity for a display of love. The diversity of persons, while a threat to love on the one hand, is also the opportunity for love to do a new thing, a a, a flourishing work among the believers, The point that I'm making is that the kind of love that indicates the presence of the Christian family is distinct from the kind of love that we find among people who are very similar. An analysis of the names mentioned in this chapter, and scholars have done this, demonstrates that there are nine women, 17 men who are mentioned. There's a mixture here of Jews and Gentiles. Some of these were obvious natives of Rome. Others were immigrants. As many as two-thirds appear to come from a lower class, the slave class. Others appear to be rather high on the socioeconomic ladder. Now, just think of it, church. The point is that there was a distinctive love at work that united such a diverse group of people where you see that kind of diversity coming together, you have to say, what's the source? What is the origins of the kind of love that can unite people who disagree and have such different perspectives? It's an important question because we all seem to know that a love that can unify like this really is a powerful source for human flourishing. It really is that which can give hope to our fractured world. Yes, it really is true. Love wins. Now, what is this love that wins? We find ourselves, of course, in the current month of June, which we are told is Pride Month. I wrote a lot of this sermon sitting at Starbucks. It's all around me. And I'm asking myself a question. Here we are presented, apparently an answer to the question in our day of the kind of love that we all need. Here's the kind of love, we're being told, that unites people rather than divides people. But what is this love that the LGBTQ community boasts about? In his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Carl Truman demonstrates how odd it is that there is such a strong alliance in the LGBTQ community. Despite our familiarity with the acronym, he explains, quote, that it is far from an obvious or natural confederation of sexual minorities. What keeps them together is not uniformity. They have their own internal conflicts, seen most publicly today in the pejorative acronym TERF, meaning trans-exclusionary, radical feminist. Try to get your mind around that. But what we have in the LGBTQ, LGBTQ community, let's be honest, is an apparent diverse community that seems to have found a love that unites. Is this the love the world needs? We're certainly being told that it is. But here's the thing. The source of this love is not positive, but negative. Here's what I mean. What keeps the LGBTQ community together is, Truman demonstrates in his book, their, quote, common enemy, a socially and politically enforced heterosexual normativity. The LGBTQ alliance has, he shows, emerged over time, not as a result of intrinsic affinities between the various groups involved, but rather because of a shared sense of victimhood, a common interest in destabilizing society's heterosexual norms, and therefore a convenient coalition for political and legal lobbying." End quote." So what would happen, one would have to ask, if the LGBTQ community held together, not positively, But negatively, that is, they have a common enemy. What would happen if they were to prevail in all of their ambitions? Would the love that they say they celebrate actually win? Would it actually unite the world? Would human civilization finally really begin to reach a utopia and flourish? And the answer is that we have every reason to doubt this. Because the alliance, remember, is a negative alliance. It is, Truman says, an anti-culture. It's defined negatively as, quote, a rejection of past norms and the destruction and erasure of the same. All we are left with is what the sexual revolution is really all about, quote, the expression of emotional preferences, We're simply saying as Christians, wait, we're taking an honest look at this. A seri- we're taking your argument seriously. If we each get to define ourselves according to how we feel and what we want, we're on pretty shaky ground for believing that we have found the source of a love that overcomes all opposition. To all of that, Christianity gives a different answer. The love that truly wins is not one of self-expression. It's a love of self-giving. The love that wins can only be the love of God himself. But now, Christian, listen. I, I wrote all that hesitatingly this morning. I know who I'm preaching to. Lest we Christians move too quickly here and end up self-righteous Pharisees using our own expression of self-love. See, we're the right people. That's not what I'm after here. We had better remind ourselves what this love of God is. So if you say, yeah, but I'm writing notes down. Oh, that was good. Where's that book again? Before you start going there, Christian, can we sit in some humility for a moment? The great verse about the love of God in Romans is Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We seem to have forgotten that in the culture wars of our day. Here is enough for us to make the major point that the love of God is a self-giving love, not self-expressive love. It is not the invitation to go be yourself, but the invitation to go give yourself. This is the love that wins. Again, in order to prevent us from snoozing through all this, any snoozers out there, let me state the matter again. The love of God does something that no human love could ever do. God's love is the love that wins because it is the love that triumphs Over wrath. And when I say wrath, I mean a just, righteous, fully deserved wrath. The wrath of God is not the opposite end of God's love. God's wrath is his settled and sorrowful opposition to everything that is evil. And you and I are included under the wrath of God because we have colluded with evil. So his wrath necessarily includes his enmity against us. But we must learn to think of God not as an angry God, but as a loving God. Passionate. So passionate, in fact, that he simply will not give up on his promise and his plan to fill the world. Every corner of the universe with his infinite love. And the way that he has triumphed in his plan has now been made plain. It has been revealed. It was in his own, not sparing his son, but freely giving him up for us all, Romans 8.32 says. And once we come to understand who this son is, not an independent third party, but God's own self, we come to see the kind of love that truly wins. Nothing can separate us Paul says, from the love of Christ. No, Romans eight thirty seven. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. Don't you see? This is the only love that has the power to unite us. The power to unite the entire world in all of its diversity. It's the love that we receive first, and you must receive it, But then, having received it, it is a love that empowers us to express this love through our union with Christ. And it's union with Christ that is the secret, the source of this love. It's the love that unites the Christian family. It's not because we have everything in common, we see everything eye to eye, we agree on everything. It's because we are united to the same Lord. It's right here in our text. Not just once, repeatedly. Take a look at it. Notice union with Christ. We're prepared for this. We preached a whole series on it, right? So you know, look at it in verse two. Welcome her in the Lord. Verse three, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Again, verse seven, they were in Christ before me. Again, verse eight, my beloved in the Lord. Verse nine, our fellow worker, in Christ. Verse 10, approved in Christ. Verses 11 and 12, greet those in the Lord, those who worked hard in the Lord. And then again, one more time, verse 13, chosen in the Lord. We may not know a whole lot about these early Christians in Rome, but one thing we clearly know, the love they possessed had its source in the self-giving love Found only in union with Christ, the one who, as Paul says elsewhere, loved me and gave himself for me. Only this love that originates in the self-giving love of God himself possesses the power to overcome all evil in our world today. And Christian, you should know it more than anyone else. And if you do, if you know this love of God, then I want to make just a few closing observations from how Paul describes the Christians in these verses that show us this love in action. If you say, I know this God, I've experienced the love of God in Christ who gave himself for me. If this is true, then I want you to see from this snapshot, this picture that Paul gives in these 16 verses, the kinds of things that love motivates in the lives of Christians. If you have encountered the love of God in Christ You cannot help but be transformed by it. You can't. We have to end the idea that you can simply receive the love of God in Christ, and it does nothing to transform your life. I want you to see just a few indications here of what this kind of love motivates. What does it do in the lives of Christians who've come to grasp the self-giving love of God the most striking thing said about anyone here is what is said about Phoebe in the first two verses. Phoebe is not one Paul is greeting. It's, she is one Paul is commending. He commends her to the Roman Christians. Most likely, almost all commentators agree, Phoebe was the one entrusted to carry the letter to the Romans. The letter that Paul wrote, what many have called the most amazing letter ever written was handed to this sister, entrusted to her, to carry to the church at Rome. Now that in itself is rather extraordinary in the first century context. Paul entrusted this very important letter to a woman, and it wasn't because he had no other choice. Look at what is said about Phoebe. This is why Paul says, I'm, I'm giving my letter to her. Look what it says. Phoebe, despite her gender, was entirely trustworthy. And I say despite her gender because I'm speaking about the first century context. You understand what I'm saying? Okay. Look what it says about her. Paul says, writing in the first century about this woman, he first says he commends her as a sister. She's part of the family. In fact, speaking about women like this was pretty indicative of a Christian community. To speak of another woman as a sister, who wasn't wasn't actually her biological sister, was a distinctive mark of the Christian community. Notice what else he says about her. He calls her a deacon of the church at Syncria. The deacon being, I think, again, along with most commentaries, The better way of understanding the word that the ESV has translated servant here. The Greek word is diakonos. In fact, it's in the the male gender in Greek, which seems to indicate that she wasn't just a mere servant of the church. She did some nice things, but she actually held an office. She held the office of a deacon in the church at Synchria. Paul also says in verse 2, Not only is she a sister, she's part of the family, not only does she hold a leadership position in the church, he also says of her in verse 2, she's been a patron of many and of myself as well. It seems that Phoebe was a woman of wealth, quite possibly a successful businesswoman, but she had used her assets and her influence for the service of God's people. Similar things might be said of the other women that Paul mentions in these verses, but the point that stands out is this. In the early church, women served a vital role in the ministry of God's love for his people. They were not put on the sidelines. Christians today, of course, disagree on various aspects of what exactly that entails, but one thing must be said clearly. Where women are put down in the church, rather than lifted up and honored for the ministry they do, the love of God is being denied and suppressed. Let us all learn to welcome in the Lord all our sisters in Christ in a way worthy of the saints. For without their ministry, indeed, without their leadership, we all suffer. We all suffer. So here at Crosstown, we have tried to follow this, and we keep trying to follow it more clearly, more consistently. Women, of course, gladly hold the office of deacon here at Crosstown, just like Phoebe did. And we all know how much our church has benefited from not just the service, but the leadership of various godly women who have served you and me and all of us so faithfully, and we should thank them with a round of applause. (laughs) Verses 3 and 4, Paul extends his greetings to Prisca and her husband, Aquila. We know about them from other places in the New Testament. Prisca, also known by her diminutive name, Priscilla, They came to know Paul because they worked in the same trade as he did. They were tent makers, Acts 18.3. And it seems that they may have been Paul's closest friends who shared not only the same occupation, but also the same passion. Notice what he says. Paul says, they risked their necks for my life. We don't know, of course, what specific situation Paul may have had in mind, but the fact that he follows this up by saying that all the churches of the Gentiles are indebted to them indicates indicates that this extraordinary couple were prone to taking great risks for any one of God's people and for gospel causes. If there's anything that we might glean from this, I would suggest this. The deepest friendships are forged in the love of God that motivates God's people to lay down their lives for one another, just as God himself and Christ has done for us. In the past week, we've had a family in our church who has been quite sick. Peter, sorry to use you as an example this morning, but my understanding is that many people serve the Collister's very well, sacrificially, spending the night even at their house, I have that right, taking care of new baby Asa and her sister and her brother, laying their lives down, that is worthy of our honor and our thanks. This is where the deepest friendships in the gospel community are formed. It's not gonna happen if you just get up and walk out after attending an event. It happens in the bodily presence of a brother or sister in need. And it's the kind of love the world needs. Now, the list of names goes on and I can't. I gotta end this sermon. Most of the rest of the names have an accompanying comment or two. And there's some interesting possibilities here. For example, Rufus in verse 13. He just might well have been the son of Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross of Christ to Golgotha. Mark 15:21 says that Simon his, he had two kids and one of them was named Rufus. Is this the Rufus? If so, imagine what it was like to have that guy in the church. Imagine what he had to contribute to the church at Rome. Nevertheless, what can we say? The list of names here is something like the credits at the end of the movie, going by way too fast. I I, I saw the credits of a movie recently. I have no idea what movie it was. That will shock you because I don't ever remember anything about a movie. But the credits, like, went so, they they were like this tall. And they went by, I thought, what? Well, I mean, You can't even read the name if you even wanted to read. I mean, nobody reads the names, right, unless your name was in it, and then you're like, hey, pause it. There I am. I'm in the credits. Like, what, what is all that for? That's what's going on right here. If only we could pause it for just a moment and ask a few of these people a few leading questions. But nevertheless, what are we left with here? We are just beginning to see a picture of a community that is both, in the words of one commentator, attractive and frightening. Enormous potential, huge risks, a community both lively and vulnerable. And so it has always been for the church of Jesus. Formed as it is by the powerful self-giving love of God, the church is now, as always, very much alive. But at the same time, given that our vocation, our calling, is to carry this self-giving love to the world. The church is now, as it has always been, extremely vulnerable. We do not need the power of the world to win. We have the power of Christ, the power to lay down our lives in love, even for our enemies. That is the love that Came into the world 2,000 years ago, and the world has never been the same since. It's the love that, through God's people, continues to change the world to this very day. Let's pray together. We ask you now, Heavenly Father. to help God's people now as we come to the Lord's table to remember how we got here. We got here by a love that preceded us. We got here by a God of love that we know because of the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a God who is all-powerful. But this is a God who took all of that power, laid it down in love, and thereby has done what he promised he'd do all along, the righteousness of God in Christ. God has been justified. He has done what he said he would do. He has brought to the world the fulfillment of his promise. He has brought a new creation in and through the love of God in Christ. And the love that this world needs, the world that, the love that continues to transform a broken world is the power to lay down your life, knowing that nothing, not even death itself, can separate us from the love of God in Christ. The promise of Easter Sunday hangs over it all. If indeed new creation has come, then not even death will have the final word. But just like on that glorious Easter morning, resurrection will come in all of its fullness one day. The world will be radically transformed. And just as the body of Christ was recognizable but different, transformed, so the world that we see today will be fully and finally complete, radically transformed in the love of God in Christ. This is what the world needs. This is what we need. Remind us all of this glorious promise and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.